Did it finally go? Did it finally go? I think it might have finally gone. Oh, I'm seeing critters. Fuck. I'm seeing critters. Very sorry to preempt the critters. I know we all love the critters, folks. They're delightful. They're friends. They're they're gentle creatures of the forest deep. And we all wish we could frolic with them daily. But sadly, we must spend our days with much less agreeable mammals, namely barking human beings whose brains have been filled with poison. I did pet a horse in the snow when I was canvassing for Bernie in New Hampshire. It was out in the country and there was a house that had a paddock next to it. And there was a horse out there. There was nobody home, but I got to pet the horse. And that was nice. They're fun. They got those big, gigantic eyes. Horses are nice. Chill dudes. Chill dudettes. Oh, the volume is super low, huh? Well, at this point, there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just accepting that you can hear it or not. And if you can't hear it, well, maybe you weren't meant to hear it. Maybe hearing it would be bad for you. Maybe there are forbidden truths that you're not ready to absorb. And as a result, it's like the world spirit, Awa herself, is blocking the audio quality and making it so that you can't hear these, these things that would break your mind and uh, send you off into a spiral of, of self-destruction and destruction of others. Uh, in fact, you could say that the uh, variable volume uh, is, is the thing that saved your life. So, so be, be thankful. Be thankful as you are for all things. I did finish How To with John Wilson. The last episode was phenomenal. The whole thing was brilliant. And I watched some of his videos on Vimeo, and it's very interesting to see his like style change over time as he kind of refines what he's doing. Because like the earlier stuff is much cruder in its like uh, in its comedy and also in its overall uh, uh, like point of view. Time is, is a necessary ingredient for art. 
So he says that uh, moralistic fables can be good like Avatar if the, if the moral is good. I mean, that's half of it. The other half is it has to be told well. And the thing I would say to anyone who says that Avatar isn't a good movie in any respect is that if you could tell me that you were sitting there watching those scenes where they're flying on the back of the dragon thing, uh, the big battle. I mean, think of what combat and action scenes are like in current movies, big movies. Michael Bay, Christopher Nolan, all the Marvel shit. Think of what those, Zack Snyder, think about what those action scenes look like. Big battle scenes. They are largely incomprehensible uh, pixelated explosions of, uh, I can't sort it out. What am I supposed to do? That are really de decontextualized uh, and that are edited into a total haphazard slog, generally. I mean, if you like Christopher Nolan movies, you don't really like the action scenes, right? Like, you like the puzzle box stuff. You like the clever things. How many action scenes are in Nolan's, like, uh, repertoire of, of, you know, great moments, uh, cinematically? Maybe the hallway fight in Inception, but that's not really about the action. That's about the, spe that's about the specific, like, dimensions. Although, you know, even there, it's not shot particularly interestingly or, like, emotionally. You watch the like the big climactic battle scene in Avatar. He sets up spatial relationships so you know where everything is, where the where the uh, the people are, where the ships are. Then he has them engage in battle, and it, every shot builds a little narrative within the battle. Whereas modern action is kind of built around the premise of disorientation. And while you might say that's good in its own way, one thing it doesn't do is build investment in it as a piece of narrative it doesn't tell a story a story not the story but a story within the story and Cameron's action tells stories within stories so his moral his simplistic Disney moral is wedded to technical uh, uh, technical genius Somebody who says, yeah, thank you. Anyone, the reason, somebody said, uh, sort out your audio mate. And it triggered me because British people I am done with. I'm done with hearing anything from British people. They are about to just blow themselves up and sink into the North Atlantic on purpose because they just are too fucking miserable to deal with one another. They had a total possibility. They had a chance to fucking be a functioning country. They had a guy who was standing there in front of them and saying, hey, you fucking pussy, uh, disgusting trolls. How about you sh quit being miserable for one second of your life and believe in each other just enough to fucking press a button in a goddamn voting booth? And they couldn't be asked to do it. Instead, they would rather fucking just pull a giant uh, cork out of the, the sink hole, out of the fucking uh, the drain, and just let them swirl into the ocean. Good fucking riddance. After, um, after birthing this monstrosity, after birthing global capitalism... And then being left bereft after uh, the, your kid ran away, ran across the water, seek its fortune in the West, and now you're just the sad, pathetic, gutted, emptied shell, and now you're gonna die like an octopus that has released their spores, even though you didn't have to. 
You could have had some dignity. And no one can say that they did not have every fucking chance to go a different direction. They had one of the only decent people that hideous island has produced, Jeremy Corbyn, telling them every day to their face that it doesn't have to be this way. And the miserable fucking bog, bog monsters decided, ah, no, he's, not, he's lying. It, he, it can't be real. It's a trap because I, if everyone around here is like me and I am so awful and miserable and shitty and, and pale and, and, and grotesque and, and, and nasty and, and uh, disconnected and antisocial, well, then none of us could ever get together on anything why not just go down pretending it's the Blitz again? Getting national cohesion. Like, basically, what, what, what Brexit was is, this, is an attempt by the British people to regain a moment that they all think they actually cared about one another. And that was World War II. That was the, that was the emergency. That was the keep calm and carry on moment when they had meaning in life because they had an understanding of themselves that went beyond their individuality. They were part of a fucking of a country that was under attack from evil and that was fighting it. And, found, and, and their struggle and sacrifice in that context had a virtue. And they want it again. That's why they're jacking off at the idea about all the food they won't be able to eat. And how they're going to have to do victory gardens and stuff and ration potatoes because they need to get that back. Because they can't imagine any other way to get it. Even though Jeremy Corbyn was standing there right there. Hey, if you guys want to have like national sense of purpose and mission, we don't have to do austerity to ourselves masochistically, you fucking repressed Victorian freaks. How about we create a actual political, actual, we turn this country out, and we, we take it from being a business enterprise and turn it into a country, an actual, like, civic project. A, a civic project of governance and a civic project of, of, um, of improvement rather than just a civic project of, of, of dour withstanding of, of, of pain, a dour endurement of, of because... Because they can because that's conceivable to them, because national unity through austerity is conceivable. Because in that case, you're operating out of hate, fear. You're operating out of fear. You're operating out of afraid of something being worse. Yes, huddling underneath the tube, waiting to get blown up. Yes, cutting a bean into three pieces, like in a fucking war, uh, Looney Tunes cartoon for dinner. Uh, that's unpleasant, but it's better than the Nazis taking over. Instead of a goose step on your neck and, and uh, fucking concentration camps on the Thames. Uh, but here, in, uh, now, Corbyn's uh, not anti-austerity pledge for national purpose, that was appealing to the idea of love, the idea of getting doing something better. And they can't imagine that because they don't love anybody, including themselves. And of course... It's not like we're much better than that. They're just further along in this process of alienating themselves from the world because they started before we did. And there's fewer of them, which means that the, it, it intensifies. Like the generational pathogens just multiply over time. And so they're just all so miserable that they can only operate off of, they can only be... They can only be socially. Uh, they can. They imagine that they can only be socially uh, can, um, compelled by a fear of punishment of some kind, in the form of, well, all right, austerity Britain sucks, but it's better than becoming, uh, you know, a completely Polish 
uh, denatured, capital uh, dissolved uh, department of Europe, which will be miserable in a different and worse way. Those are horrors beyond imagining. Whereas I can imagine what it would be like to have to, to, to have a victory garden. My grandpa talks about it, and he talks about how everybody was happier back then. We're going to make it happen again. And they saw, had the chance. They had the signpost. They said, no, thank you. We're too traumatized by our own. We've been too defeated by victory. Because all of this stems from the fact that these are the monsters who destroyed the world. These are the monsters who set out more than anyone they were the most successful ones, anyway, among, among the Europeans, the ones who set out to subdue the world and to, turn it, and to turn everything in it away from everything else and towards itself. They started it. Their culture has been molded and, and, uh, and completely driven around that central premise since the dawn of capitalism. And now they find themselves a husk where they don't even have the... the they have lost for many more years than us, the dream of plenty that we were able to sustain because of the fantasy first of our Western expansion and then the global uh, bounty of the post-war dominance that we enjoyed, the, the empire that we held before, before the borders closed off and before the myth uh, lost its potency, before we had to turn back inward and try to find a, a way to deal with one another, having, no, having to developed no social bonds in like 40 years, having generated no social trust in 40 years. Well, it's been a lot longer for the Brits. So you can't, as with anything, you can't blame them. But I sure as shit don't have to fucking listen to them. I sure as shit don't have to listen to them condescending to me with their goddamn fancy accents and their dumb slang, calling me their mate. I'm not your fucking mate. And of course, Americans can't get too cocky because we're right behind them. We are right behind them. It's just, you know, we have more, we have more uh, loot to, to burn through before we get to the Mexican standoff. But it'll be, and it'll be very interesting to see how much self-inflicted damage will come from this just because of their refusal to have any faith in each other. And maybe it couldn't have been any other way. Maybe they're too far gone. Maybe Bur maybe Corbin was like this thing that only could come into being. He could only be the guy. Like he could only be the guy because he was never a real threat. And if you think about it, that is in technical terms what happened because Corbin was only nominated, was only put in as a name from leadership after uh, after Miliband ate shit because he'd been around for a long time. He'd been a real trooper about all that new labor invasion of Iraq shit which, you know, he was against the entire time and watched his party do from the back bench. Uh, hey, and he stuck around and he was, uh, he was there, you know, to, to, not, to, to, to put, you know, Blair and Brown in there. Real good sport. Let's give him a little shot, huh? A little, little top, look, let's give him a little fun time. It was like a make-a-wish moment. It was like, remember Bat Kid? Is anybody old enough now to remember Bat Kid? When that little, like, kid... By the way, is he dead? Did that kid die, or is he in remission? Because honestly, if he doesn't die, that's kind of ridiculous what they did for a kid who was just like, you know, basically just in the hospital. I mean, fuck, I went to the hospital when I was a kid. I, I went to the, I've had been through some fucking stuff. But anyway, uh, <coughs> it was a little make-a-wish thing from the labor front bench. And then what happened is, is that, oh shit, you know, 
the, the loss had sort of shaken things loose enough that people were interested in a new thing. And as soon as, as soon as that became something that was on the menu, all these labor members, remember these are people who don't just vote in primaries, they are members, which means that their relationship to the party is much different than the, the relationship of American liberals and leftists or whatever, voters, and the Democratic Party. And so he caught on, but he caught on in a context where he was only allowed to be an option because of the fundamental uh, hegemonic rule of the new labor uh, leadership. And then the proof of that can be found in that even when he won the, 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 the spot, he was never able to actually have control of the party. As we now know, at every level, he was explicitly sabotaged by people and was not... And, Either because he was too much of a softy, or they didn't have enough leverage, and that might—if it's—if it's—if it's leverage point, then this was never going to work. Uh, they did not purge the party. They did not purge and get rid of all these time servers. They didn't clear the Ogian stables of Blairites. And once they didn't do that, they were basically fucked. Now they might have lost anyway because of the way the entire you know media apparatus organized against them. That might have been tough. And Brexit was there to be the wedge on behalf of reaction, um, but. That inability to actually have your party operating on your behalf, that meant he was never going to be able to mount a real challenge. And maybe that's because they knew at a basic, like, basal level that even if you let him in, he'll take care of him. And if that's the case, it's, it, Corbyn was always just sort of this, like, last burn-off of XX and democratic vision. Like, he was the last gaseous output of the last little pocket of, like, uh, human... Uh, feeling on the continent or on that island, on that accursed land, like the last bit of human felt communal uh, identity that transcended the personal, it just and that's being like burned out of all society by the drivetrain of capitalism and alienation. And this was as as like we near the final and total alienation of Britain. There's and then final perhaps destruction, literal dismemberment due to a No Deal Brexit, a suicidal act. Of the end of the this is the DMT. The Corbin was the DMT basically, the last spiritual sigh of the collective humanity of Britain before the death rattle kicked in. Now, of course, that means we are on that trajectory, and maybe Bernie was that with us, but maybe we have a few more. Maybe there's a few more. Uh, maybe there's a few more boxes to open. Maybe a few more cats are alive than we currently think. No way of knowing, but you can see the trajectory. You certainly can see the trajectory, and uh, I do wonder what the Brits are going to do because this looks like it's going to be something in the middle of COVID. I mean, my God, this thing was supposed to be a disaster. To do it in the middle of COVID, my God, and uh, I will say uh, also that. I, I know there was a left case for Brexit. I know that Corbyn was a Brexiter. Uh, and, well, he should have been. Like, like uh, if Brexit hadn't happened and Corbyn had been, had been able to become prime minister of a left-wing labor government, he probably would have pursued some sort of Brexit from the left, and it would have been a good idea. And so... There's a critique of, of Corbyn that he did not just embrace a left Brexit from the beginning. And the problem is that is that if you do that, you do lose your right flank completely. Like, they flee to, uh, to the Lib Dems. 
and make it impossible for, for you probably to govern. Because they just got out of a coalition with the, with the fucking Tories. They would go back into one in a heartbeat by literally joining them. If they could like get into positions of power within the party, which they certainly would, because they're the, they were they'd be holding the whip hand there. Um, and you know you could argue it wouldn't have mattered. They would have been able to sweep them in. Uh, they would have been able to combine like the working class Tory voter pool and the entire working class uh, uh, labor uh, voting pool and the Scots. Bring the Scots back from the SNP, and they would have fucking swamped them. Uh, but it was a real concern, and that's because at the nexus of liberals and leftists, at the nexus of right and left uh, labor members, on the issue of Brexit, was how far can we go in letting this happen without being irresponsible? Because there was this understanding that Brexit would be bad materially for the people who live in Britain. That it would not, it would, it's not something to be reckless about. And the left position was, don't let them fucking intimidate you. Don't let them try to spook you with this. Like, at the end of the day, you're too big of an economy for them to just completely let fuck up. And, like, uh, these politics can be finessed uh, by not finessing them. And there was, that, there was that whisper in the ear that, like, labor had to stay away from uh, pushing over the Coke machine to, to Brexit out of, like, a general need to preserve, you know, basic integrity of the British economic system. And... It was always theoretical because what was going to happen in Brexit is unknown. And everybody had a personally, emotionally invested, subconscious bias on how much to take it seriously. Like, the more of a lib you were, the more seriously you took the ob like objective economic argument about what would happen if Brexit was uh, got, went through. The more you wanted to just say fuck you to this whole Brexit bullshit and, and go around it and just embrace a left Brexit, even though that meant in practice doing a, 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 a Tory Brexit, because that's the that's the thing, is that you're not you're probably going to be doing a Tory Brexit then, uh, because they're the ones who initiated it and that's where the the uh, that's where the center of gravity of support for Brexit was was in the late was in the Conservative Party. And that, and that it broke against demographic currents that you need to keep together uh, as a left-wing party, and you don't want to fracture them. So it was a live question, but it was invested with which with uh, your your material preferences. Like that was guiding you more than you even knew when you were deciding how seriously to take the threat of Brexit to the economy and to the livelihood of people in Britain. And I guess we're gonna find out. We're gonna find out how much of it was uh, was propaganda and how much of it was real. Yeah, that's the thing is that uh, is that the even though Labour could have gotten a huge percentage of voters with a with a left Brexit position, and they would have eaten into some of the Tory working class vote. Brand loyalty is such, traditional po voting patterns and like social bonds are such, racial understanding and things like that are such that you wouldn't get all of them, or maybe even most of them. You might only get a, a small fraction. Meanwhile, everybody who already votes Lib Dem, which is not insubstantial, plus what? What percentage of the labor vote would, would have voted for the Lib Dems in that situation? 
it's got to be at least 25%, right? And if it's 25%, that would almost guarantee a coalition between, like there was uh, with Cameron and uh, Nick Lund or whatever the fuck is name. Jeb Lund? Who the fuck was his name? Nick Clegg, that's it. Sounds like a fucking horse taking a shit. Nick Clegg. Uh, and he'll just do it again. So it was a tougher spot than just saying, fuck it, we'll, we'll be legends and, and be left Brexit. Uh, but the thing that made it so slippery is that it all hinged on a, a, a premise that couldn't be confirmed. Like, what is Brexit really? Is it a boogeyman or is it, a, is it an apocalypse? I mean, it's probably not going to be either, but it's going to be closer to one than to the other. We might actually find out. Oh, it might. It bloody chav nick me mobu. Michael Tracy watches the streams, really? How, how do you know? Are you Michael Tracy? Oh, he nicked me bleeding mobu. He nicked it, mate. It's a, it's a bloody, it's a mate. It's nick, mate. He nicked it. I think people all say, honestly, though, people say, um, like, oh, the Brits are going to lose, lose the United Kingdom. Those idiots. Think about it this way, though. So presumably, if you did get some sort of complete dissolution of the United Kingdom, barring in the context of just complete economic collapse, I mean, you know, a managed transition, a velvet revolution type thing, who would be mad? Obviously, the Scots would not be mad. The Welsh wouldn't be mad. Some of the uh, Northern Irish would be mad, but it wouldn't be the UK's problem anymore. That would be the Irish's problem. Uh, good luck with that Dublin, which, by the way, is one reason that I really don't think that they're that, that excited about the prospect uh, of, of reunification in the halls of power in the Republic. Because all of a sudden, you would have to deal with, one, integrating a, uh, the uh, most economically depressed part of Ireland into your economy, which is much smaller in general than Britain's is, uh, and deal with this now active, restive, not quite majority anymore, but like 50% of the population, and you might say, okay, you know, maybe only a third of them are still really, uh, you know, poker up the ass unionists, but that's still enough to mean you're going to get some version of the troubles pop up again, it, it, with the reverses, with the powers reversed. But, and, uh, you know, it w I don't think it would necessarily be anywhere near as intense as the last one, but is it a really headache you want when everything's basically the same? The main difference is the colors of the fucking post boxes. But again, if Brexit comes in, that changes the calculus. And then, what about the Brit English, is what I say. What about the English? Won't they be sad that they lost their empire? No. They'll be relieved. They get to be England. Being, being British only had meaning when it felt like it was part of a project of greatness, of expansion, of at least prestige. But in like crisis, uh, you know, EU conditions, England essentially had a nervous breakdown. Because remember, England is the only part of the UK that voted for leave. And it's where labor lost was in England. Because they essentially pulled the pin on the United Kingdom themselves because these, these, these vestiges, these appendages, those, these pissed off Scottish people who want to like act like they're not us, like they didn't do the fucking, uh, you know, they didn't do uh, the suppression of the Sepoy Rebellion or whatever the hell, because, oh, we oppressed them or something, or these 
dumb fucking Welshmen with their dumb fake language getting oppressed when you call them a sheep fucker. And these goddamn mixed whining over in England, even, even Ireland, even though they were blowing us up at our own pubs only a few years ago. All we got to hear is bitch, bitch, bitch. It's, what's the point of this? Why don't just be England again? Get quiet. Feel, just be alone with our thoughts as good English people. And not have to worry about these fucking uh, yapping assholes. So, yeah, I'd say everybody would be happy with a breakup except for the Ulster Scots, of course. They're going to be very mad. Katie, bar the door. Yeah. Does that, do, do any UK or Irish people in the chat want to want to pop up with some like uh, more informed ideas of what that would look like? Like if there was a reunification, because I could totally see it. Because you would not if if they voted. Do we to, due to this new situation with the EU? Do we do uh, with uh, and the border being reestablished and breaking the Good Friday Agreement and like essentially ripping up the document that had prevented war from breaking out for the past. 25 years now, or 30 years. Uh, 25. Um, if that's going to be the new order, it would make more economic sense. It would be make better sense for my family to rejoin the Republic. You got basically all the, ca all the Catholics are going to say that, and at this point, that's what, 45, almost 50%? They're nearing parity because they outbreed the Protestants. But then, among uh, the, pro the uh, but then among the Protestants, among younger people who didn't grow up in the fucking furnace of the uh, of the troubles, uh, the desire to you know have a functioning economy uh, and and uh, ease of ease of movement and stuff like that will be more than whatever vestigial relationship they had to the union leaving only sort of the most, you know, unreconstructed un Paisleyite, which, so that's, what, 25% of the population? What would they do? Like, obviously, the Armalites are coming out again. They're not going to just take that line down. But, like, how far do they go? Is it, is it like Tea Party shit? You, know, you just march around with ARs, like, and then just do random, like, uh, 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 violence? Or do they... Do they like go to go to war? But the thing is, they're mostly drug gangs now. Like like all the all those all the unionist uh, paramilitaries, they're still around, but they are um, they're completely dedicated. Since I mean, you know, it's like they 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 demobilized the the war with the IRA because you know they they had essentially uh, agreed to sublimate their conflict into politics. So they they did the but the so they didn't really need to exist anymore. The IRA needed to exist because they were the loser in, in the sense that they didn't kick the Brits out. The Brits are still there, so they did not get their ultimate aim. So they had to keep the weapons. They had to keep the organization going. The paramilitaries had no reason to exist, except for the fact that they were already, by that point, selling a shitload of fucking drugs and making a shitload of money, which is way better than sitting around the pub with a fucking dole check in your pocket in one of the fucking housing estates. So they fucking are right now the, the people who sell heroin in Northern Ireland. If they change the color of the mailboxes, do they give a shit enough to give up that life? Again, I don't know. What do people think?
What's up with Armenian Irish or Bajan? Uh, well, uh, a pretty astounding, uh, monstrous, monstrous. Uh, it's more war crimes from Turkey. It's more war crimes from our from our NATO ally, which we uh, looked the other way while they ethnically cleansed northern Syria, and now they're doing it in uh, Nagorno uh, with the Azeris. It's and they're uh, essentially. I gotta believe that it's some sort of deal with Russia. I'm assuming that on some other point in the geopolitical map, and maybe Libya would be a place, uh, Putin is like, has an interest greater than his strategic interest in Armenia, which Erdogan was able to, uh, to arbitrage by saying, hey, I will give you this because it doesn't matter as much to me as Armenia does. And so Putin says, sure, because by his calculus, he's losing less than he's getting. But by Erdogan's point of view, whatever he's losing, whether it's in Libya or with the shale oil they're trying to drill off of Cyprus, he is more, much more interested in getting back some of that territory from Armenia. And so, it, so the exchange happened. The stately quadrille continued. The dirty game of diplomacy at another round. And it's monstrous. It's, it's hideous. It's horrifying. They're chopping off old men's heads and putting it on fucking TikTok. Uh, I don't know what, 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 what much else to say about it. I mean, the fact that it's not on the news and the way that Syrian civil war is tells you a lot if you didn't already know, but you should probably know by now. Oh, yes, yes, this is Azeris, the Azeris. Like, they would do anything, because Armenia's a regional ally, Armenia's a regional ally to Russia, which is right there. I think Azerbaijan is going to pick a fucking fight at that, that close to Russia without backup, guaranteed backup from Turkey, which was immediately supplied. That's the context that the whole thing takes place in. You can't remove that and act like, oh, it's not Turkey, fuck off. Because... Azerbaijan doesn't choose, doesn't get to choose whether or not to go into uh, Naragon. Erdogan gets to choose. Therefore, it's because of Turkey. Tell me how I'm wrong. Now, you have, might have a situation where somebody overextends themselves and you have to go in, but that's not what happened here. That's sure shit not what happened here. This is a calculated escalation to see what they could get. And they got Naragoro because Putin had other interests that were greater. Or is it Karabakh? I have no idea. I really don't know much about it. Just the broad strokes. Critical support for the Armenians, of course. I mean, I think that's, uh, yeah. Because some of these get tough, you know, if you want to do the campus thing of picking, like, okay, who's on the anti-imperial side? But this one's a pretty easy one. Especially when you see what, uh, what they're doing in the places that they've conquered. Like, they're doing ethnic cleansing. They're, they're, they're pulling off the, like the Armenian writing off of uh, churches to claim that they're actually old mosques. For, they were mosques first, so they can do the Hagia Sophia thing. And uh, chopping people's heads off and, and ugh. So 
Anyway, does anybody have an idea how 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 what kind of action would you give on the uh, the UDF showing up? Like, they're gonna do bombs again? They're gonna like do or just like maybe like shoot up a chip shop? Or you're, you're gonna see like a coordinated uprising? My gut tells me a couple of showpiece uh, uh, old school park car bombs, like the one they did in uh, Dublin. Some people don't know this, but the the deadliest uh, bombing of the Troubles did not happen in Northern Ireland or in England. It happened in Dublin when the UVF took a fucking truck down in the middle of the, uh, the, the town, middle of like McConnell Street, O'Connell Street, and detonated it without calling in a warning beforehand, which the IRA did as a standard operating procedure. Once again, you know, you can always say another man's terrorist is a die streeter fighter, but sometimes you can tell who the good guys and bad guys are in these things, broadly speaking. They just drove the thing in there and let it blow up and kill as many people as possible. They'd do a, more, a couple of those for sure. But I don't think they'd do much more than that. Well, for what? At this point, none of this stuff has any... I don't know. What I have to say? I have no idea. The thing you have to remember is that the, the, the current situation is such that like the, the, the remaining structure of these paramilitaries are sustained by their relationships with the political structure, both at... Uh, Stormont and the power-sharing government, which until recently re uh, replaced uh, rule from Westminster, uh, although I think it's been suspended for years now, which is another thing that's going to contribute uh, and is contributing to a likely uh, uh, crisis uh, around Brexit. They literally haven't had home rule for like two years now, three, since before Brexit. And then, of course, with the British government, which has coordinated with them the whole time and used them as the cat's paw for... Uh, extra legal assassinations and murders and bombings. All it was essentially uh, it was essentially Celtic Gladio. It was it was a NATO member using local uh, criminal fascist elements to uh, carry on a war against the left. And they would essentially be cut off in this situation because I don't think the English are going to care enough to like. You know, take U-boats full of uh, full of Enfield rifles to the, to the ports of Northern Ireland so that they can keep these guys fighting the Irish because they don't care. The English don't care. They haven't cared for years. Uh, so without that backing and the fact that they're basically a bunch of dumbass uh, old smack dealers, I don't think they'd have a lot in them. There would be an exodus, that's the big thing. Like, a lot of the most hardcore guys would just leave. They'd go to England. Although, it'd be funny if, the, if Brexit made it harder for them to get, uh, to get citizenship. Uh, I'm, I've, I've, uh, I've always been a... I've always been a student of the trouble, specifically. I'm a... I had a college class about nationalism, and and, uh, and the, the, it was all through the prism of, of uh, the uh, the Northern Irish question. So it was like one of the first like historical and political puzzles I ever encountered in uh, college. So and I've been there. I've been to Ireland a number of times, and it's got a great. And it's also you know as you learn more about it, it's got a great revolutionary tradition. 
I mean, you got so many different uh, movements and, and uh, formations of, of resistance and leaders. You got like the white boys and the fucking... Uh, Uh, and um, and the uh, uh, fucking monster rallies with Daniel O'Connell and Charles Stewart Parnell, Roger Casement, and the, the Easter Rising, Wolf Tone, blowing his fucking jaw off to try to avoid capture by the English. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon, and the rising of boys for freedom, at the rising of the moon. And then, of course, you've got one of the goats, one of the early, one of the great figures of, uh, of the early communist uh, labor movement, James Connolly, uh, who is a kind of an Irish Lincoln in that any system where any any world where uh, the, the post-war republic doesn't descend into stagnant uh, uh, fucking Catholic quasi-feudal theocracy James Connolly does not uh, get murked because there was really nobody to follow in his footsteps and even though the uh, citizens army that he'd founded did most of the heavy lifting during the Easter Rising the, the, uh, the IRA that came later just had a much more diluted labor uh, uh, prerogative. And by the end of the war, it all got kind of stamped out of it, and all you got left is fucking the fucking blue shirts. Oh, man, Michael Collins. Uh, the big fella. I mean, a certified pimp. Uh, one, of, one of your great uh, insurgency uh, geniuses. You know, a guy who knew how to fight a uh, asymmetrical war, which cats uh, off to him because they kind of had to make it up as they went along. But um, he fucked he fucked the dog during the negotiations with Churchill. I think at the end of the day, he just fell for a bluff. Uh, I think they could have pushed it farther because I don't think that Churchill knew is they Churchill didn't know how bad they really were off. Uh, but the thing is, is that I don't think Collins knew how little the English at the end of the day really cared. Like, they cared because, you know, they had that big presence, especially in all certain, like, there was the prestige of the empire and all that, but... I mean, at the end of the day, I think, it, like, he just didn't have the, the confidence. So, like, he looked... He looked Churchill in the eyes, and he just he blinked first, and that's usually how these things end up going. It's like a lot of these historic decisions, the the, the friction ends up depending on how the turn of a coin is between individuals, uh, individual decisions in moments, or you know the collection of those rebounding on top of one another. But one way or another, he went home with an unviable document, which of course the frustrating thing is is that it's what they ended up settling for anyway. None of it was. None of the fighting was meant anything, but nobody knew that at the time because, like, so many things were bound up. You know, like it was the left wing position to reject the to reject the treaty, but at the same time, the specific question ended up being beside the point, and the fact that that's the what the civil war ended up being. I think the fact that the civil war in Ireland ended up being about 
uh, a formal question that ended up meaning nothing in the long run uh, uh, ended up ensuring that their post-war politics were going to be what they ended up being. Literally non-ideological contests between the remaining sides of that war. Like after the Civil War in the United States, that held for a little bit. You know, it was just regional. The Southerners were Democrats, Northerners were Republicans. But the, the, the fact that the war had been about some enduring question of, you know, means of production, for example, and, and me or methods of production, uh, uh, like, so, like so political economy questions, that inflected those, those uh, divisions. And then the Irish Civil War ended up being about an abstract principle of whether or not we sign this treaty and we, we have this arrangement with Britain. And yes, you can say things flowed from it, but that was the inciting thing to the way the Civil War was around slavery. And it meant that in the aftermath of the war, as the necessity of the question receded from view, all that's left is just the echo of the sides you were on. And you can't say, well, and, and, and well, I understand why left-wing forces resisted the treaty. Look at the remnant of the post-treaty, of the anti-treaty side. It was the fucking blue shirts. It was the closest thing that Ireland had to a fascism. It was the energy of that working-class movement fatally fused to nationalism because the fight had been over a national question. And so they turned into these freaky little uh, Catholic integralist goose-steppers who went to fucking Spain to fight for Franco. Those were the only significant force of foreign volunteers that Franco got, other than, you know, hired Moroccan mercenaries, was, and, and you know, uh, uh, enlisted men from Italy and Germany uh, who claimed to be volunteers, uh, were these fucking Mick dickheads who came over there, nobody knew what to do with them, and they ended up getting shot up in a friendly fire incident and then sent home. That's why nationalism is bad, folks. That's why it has, it's, it has to be dealt with, but it should never be organized as a an emotional or like conceptual principle to organize around. It is an obstacle. That, means, that can't, doesn't mean you can ignore it. It has to always be engaged with, but not on terms of friendliness. As an enemy, engaged as an enemy. And of course, you can say that, you know, that the, that the national question is different in a colonial context like Ireland was, and it is different, but it still colors the emergence of like the political struggle to come from the, the, the class conflict. And it, if it's not uh, neutralized, it will take over. It will, it will wipe out everything else. Capital, it will fuse itself with capital again. Like, English capital will just change the, the flag of convenience to the tricolor, <laughs> to the red, green, and, uh, uh, green, white, and orange, and then come in and keep robbing you fucking blind. And that's what happened. And then they had the class of priests to keep everybody nice and docile, keep all, everybody uh, uh, just cow-eyed and indolent. Like, the worst, the worst... Uh, parody of what 19th century know-nothings said about what Catholic democracy would look like. You know, isn't that funny? Like, the, like the know-nothing said, we can't let the Catholics into this country, and we can't let them vote, because they will turn our country into a priest-plagued uh, medieval uh, uh, bog. We will all be in the thrall of, of, of cardinals and landowners. 
uh, or and and is thrown into like a druidic superstitious uh, age of darkness. And the Irish, once they kicked out the British, made that literal thing. And it's because the working class had been destroyed. Because the working class energies emerging from the cl class conflict that drove the national conflict were spent and wasted in this feudal national crusade. James Larkin, uh, BTFO, sadly. But the reason the know-nothings were wrong is that they weren't coming into some like traumatized post-colonial situation. They were being assimilated into a into a capitalistic machinery of alienation, which prevents the exact kind of priest-bespoken medieval superstitious miasma that the Catholics recreated in Ireland. That's part of it. Like America's vastness and America's polyglot nature is one of the machineries that demystified Europe. It pulled us all. It pulled Europe through like through a, through a mesh screen and brought it out the other side. Like uh, like Gerald, uh, Gerald Ford. Uh, Henry Ford used to hold uh, pageants at his factories because he employed a lot of immigrants and he wanted to make sure that they all became good Americans. So he would pay. He had he had them all take on his dime. English classes, so and and, and uh, etiquette classes and like uh, civics lessons, and then they would have graduation ceremonies where they would appear on stage. Their families were in the audience. They would appear on stage in the native garb of wherever they came from. They would go up a uh, upstairs to a uh, on the top of a slide, and at the base of a slide was a big melt pot, and it said melting pot on it. And they would come down the slide. They would emerged from behind the big cutout pot wearing a suit. And then they would all stand there in the suits and get and they would be clapped. Like it was a ritual of induction into America. And the thing about that is that that's basically what America did. That pageant is is an expression of the 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 way that that the alienated subject uh, of American capitalism is acculturated within one or two within a few generations of coming to America into a social relationship. That meet, that is essentially secular, and that didn't happen in Ireland. They never got the Industrial Revolution. They went right from feudalism to uh, to neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism. Like they missed the industrial development stage completely, which is why now they have the economy of a uh, Caribbean tax haven. The economic base of Ireland is the same as like fucking Aruba or uh, or. Um, the Caymans. It's laundering money. Ireland does have an empire. What do you call the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Canada? Oh, I guess that's more Scotland. I would argue that the Mick, the Irish Catholic, is the brain of the United States. Like, if you're going to get abstract and say, like, of all the different currents of, of uh, all the different currents of immigration that came to this country from all over the world, where did their, what was their cultural impact? Like, at what level are they, you know, uh, affecting the rule, the 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 exercise of political and cultural power? 
And I would say that, you know, most of the, we, we are mostly peasant refuse from one place or another to people someone else didn't want, either because we were excess mouths from, the, from Europe, from the European agricultural economy, or from Africa if we were defeated uh, tribal enemies who were sold, away, sold as, uh, you know, uh, to re in return for, for, for produce from those very agricultural lands. We are the refuse, and then, and then we sort along geographic lines, and then we reproduce it. And like some people go and fill the interior, some people hug the coasts. And the people who hug the coast, usually because of when they got there, like all the good land closest to uh, uh, the early settlements was taken by the time the Irish really started showing up. Uh, and, uh, and by the time the West was fully opened, to like a, a genuine expansion beyond just like the reach of the uh, of the Appalachians, like when the, when the West was like Lake Michigan, that was the West, and it, the, the West opened up completely. By that point, uh, it was others. Uh, uh, by that point, the Irish had, had fixed themselves so deeply into the places they stuck those east northeastern cities that that was where subsequent generations came because that's where they knew they could get a community. They, that's where they knew they could operate. That's where they had some sort of familiarity. That's where they could... Because they didn't have anything. They couldn't come, come to America, slap down five shim, sh shillings, and buy a Conestoga wagon and go claim land in the West. Like the, the, the way that a lot of uh, like English and then later German immigrants could do. You know, I saved up all of my of my uh, my my grape harvest this year, and I got three big double eagles with the with the the King of Bavaria's face on them. And now I'm going to go to America, and I'm going to buy a fucking hogshead of nails and roll it across uh, state lines and sell it for a profit and whatever. Two nickels to rub together. The Irish were just stacked like cordwood and dumped onto the fucking shores of America. They clung to the fucking coast which means they were there to fill in those civil society roles like that, that needed to be filled as, as the, the cities became more, um, um, uh, more socially complex. Police officers, local politicians, uh, uh, figures of both of uh, pu public service and uh, administration. Someone had to do those jobs, and they were there to do them. And they were the first PMC. The first professional managerial class were the Irish immigrants who filled the, the fire stations and police stations of, uh, of the eastern cities that became the center places of American like cultural production. Even as we were producing capital elsewhere and we were spreading out across the country, uh, it was all being directed east. For, and that's being equalized, and like the political story of the last 40 years is the political story of that being equalized. But it started and stayed there. And so the Irish, they're deep in there. They're like, they're like a brain stemmy, and they have an, they're in, everything is kind of filtered through them. And then you've got, you know, of course, the uh, American uh, Ashkenazi Jews fit a very similar role, and a higher level of the PMC because of their later appearance and their relative uh, 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 diversity of income. Because like Jews of all economic stripe moved to the United States. All number of uh, pennies to rub together moved to the United States. Uh, whereas only the poorest Irish, uh, uh, except for the one you know, who were literally too poor to afford the ticket, 
came to the United States. At least they came in uh, the, the much larger percentages of them. Because like you got all of the uh, like if there's a, if there's a, a pogrom and there, there's a huge push or there's a huge conscription effort in the Tsar's army, you got all those Jews, or you got like a stretch, or you got a section of all of them. You got the vast majority of of the of the of the uh, immigrants from Ireland of the 19th century were of the lowest uh, material circumstance, which meant they came to the city and they had to get a job quick. That's one of the reasons that we care so much about all that bullshit and, and, uh, and how the IRA was able to largely fund a, a what, 30-year war with the Crown through donations from a, a plastic patty sitting around bars in Boston and Chicago. I love that Steve King, who was a reactionary shithead, and like in every so, in every in every way, your like typical from marble um, Ulster Protestant, you know, like just a ramrod reactionary psycho who fetishizes uh, a hierarchy and state violence, but because uh, he grew up around a bunch of weepy mix, he says, yeah, these socialist. Uh, the, the, these guys trying to overthrow like uh, the British control of Ireland so that they can institute a uh, a, a uh, Marxist communist government. I'm going to funnel mil millions of dollars to them by having like uh, by having oh, I'm trying to think of an Irish guy Gabriel Byrne at a uh, at a potato eating contest. Potato eating contest. Oh, they denied the the Kraken got denied. Oh no. Oh wow. The thing that we all knew was going to happen happened. Damn. Well, hearing that, damn it. Oh, I can't do it. I was going to do it. All right. You know what? I'll sing it instead. I don't think you can get in trouble for singing something. I was going to play it, but Twitch has gotten psycho about uh about uh DCC this thing so I can't play it but apropos of uh, Trumpy getting uh, murked and um, and what we've been talking about uh, let me just sing the Cadillac stand by the house and the Yanks they were within and the Tinker boys with his advice to them were not sin and they came and took and we had a look in the room where the dead man lay. And Big Jim Dwyer laid his last tip of the shoulder of the father lay. Reborn man of the USA. Oh, another good one was ribbonism. They used to wear ribbons and then go and like, 
uh, cave in the heads of landlords. There's this movie called Black 47 that's on Netflix, and it's really funny because it's like, in one respect, you can see, see why someone could say it's terrible and hate it, but I kind of respect it conceptually. It's a drama of the, uh, of the Irish potato famine. And the story is essentially a... It's, the whole thing is designed to be like a school child lesson in all the terrible things the English did. It was like sitting down a baby... It's like sitting a kid down and being like, Hey, do you want to know about the Irish potato famine? I could explain it to you. I could write it down. I, but I could just make you sit and watch this for 90 minutes. And then after having watched it, you will get it. And that means that it's sort of comical how on the nose it is. Like every single facet of like English uh, colonial rule in uh, Ireland during the famine is total. Is all happens. Like everybody, it all occurs. Every element of it. Like the fact that they were a net exporter of uh, food the whole time, because the, the the vast lands of the were being held by the absentee landlords to produce food for export. Uh, and that uh, you know that there was transportation for minor crimes to Australia. And there were mass evictions from lands where uh, the like people who weren't dying were living because landlords were wanted to turn. Um, that it was more profitable during that period when there's low agricultural prices. It was more profitable to turn uh, farmland into grazing land for sheep. So you didn't need. As uh, tenants, you could turn that land into pasture, so they just kicked them off. Like all these things are in there, and and all those things is create this story of just unrelenting, hilariously miserable uh, horror for this family. Like this guy comes back, this Irish guy, in the midst of the of the uh, of the uh, famine, comes home to his family. They've been evicted from. He's he's deserted from the uh, from the army in Afghanistan. His family's dead. Somebody gets murdered by a by a, a land uh, a, a agent of the landlord who's trying to evict them, uh, and then he just goes like he goes psycho mode. He decides to just be a terminator of uh, English colonialism. He just starts taking everybody responsible for every element of misery in Ireland up to and then finally culminating in the English landowner uh, is he fucking murks and. It's not good in the sense that it is not very subtle. It's not very uh, hard to predict. Their characters are very thin. But its ability to just embody literally an entire sort of cons uh, historical truth and just pack it all into one thing, like a, just a big gumball that you could chew on for a while and like you get something. I was like, damn, this has... I, I mean... I don't know, like, is this value purely didactic, or is there something uh, impressively artistic about it? I don't know. Or maybe the whole thing is actually a, uh, a parody. Like, it's like, there's a lot of people who theorize that Titus Andronicus was Shakespeare's parody of Jacobean, uh, bloody Jacobean revenge theater, like the, the blockbuster cinema of the time, where it was all just people murdering each other, and that was his satire of it. This is like a satire of the Irish... A catalog of woe, you know all the songs that you're supposed to sing about how oh, the English came and burned my land, and I couldn't eat a, had to eat a turnip. Oh, I, the fields of Atherry, 
where once I watched the night sleepers fly. Uh, so it, it could just also just a, uh, operate as a funny, funny parody. Either way, it's it's if nothing else, you learn something. All right, I'm out of here, guys. Bye bye.